0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 45. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on October 28th, 2021 in Austin, Texas. It's late morning in these parts, so we'll see how much of the urban background noise leaks into this podcast. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We believe there is dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, genius, defeat, and glory. Some people have suggested that that list sugarcoats the history of the Americans, that we should add brutality or oppression or even genocide. Maybe so. I'm not trying to sugarcoat American history at all. I'm not trying to serve a triumphalist version of it. But neither do I want to tell an undignified or degrading version of history. We do need a national story on which we can achieve some level of agreement. So maybe I'll add brutality or oppression. Anyway, our main purpose here by some margin, is to have some fun. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple or wherever you like writing reviews, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. This is, in the end of the day, a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. On August 28, 1587, John White, the leader of the last Roanoke colony, climbed on board Edward Spicer's flyboat and returned to England. His mandate was to secure supplies and more settlers to reinforce the people he had left behind who included his own daughter and granddaughter, Eleanor and Virginia Dare. He would not, in fact, be able to return for almost three years, by which time the roughly 116 colonists, give or take, back in North Carolina, had vanished completely, leaving behind only scant clues as to their destination. White would take three years to return because an undeclared but existential war had broken out between England and Spain, known to history as the Anglo Spanish War of 1585 to 1604. I've been through the run up to the shooting several times, most recently, a couple of episodes back Drake burns down the West Indies in St. Augustine, which is a soft prerequisite for this episode. The war was existential, not for England the country. Had Philip II and Spain won the war, England would have continued to exist as a country, and in their daily lives, most English people would have seen very little change. Philip II would have become king of England, but he'd already been king of England during his marriage to Mary Tudor. And the liturgy at church on Sunday would have changed in ways that we moderns would have regarded as hilariously trivial. However, the war was existential for Elizabeth I and her Protestant elite, who, among other things, sustained English naval power and supported North American colonization. It's very hard to imagine that an England ruled by Philip II and an entirely different batch of nobles, Catholic recusants, emerged from the political shadows, would have settled North America. Nor, it should be said, would there have been successful Protestant-Dutch settlement, because the defeat of Elizabeth would also have meant the end of Dutch Protestantism as a political force. The city in that harbor, discovered by Verrazzano more than 60 years before, would more likely have been New Seville, or New Lisbon, than New Amsterdam or New York. That is why this episode is titled the defeat of the Spanish Armada and the survival of Protestant England. The victory over the Armada, in addition to being an intensely entertaining story, is one of the but-for moments in the history of the Americans— But for that victory, not only would most North Americans speak Spanish instead of English, but Spanish and Catholic legal, cultural, and economic traditions might well have shaped the North American future as dramatically as they did in Central and South America. Or maybe not. Hegemons get exhausted and eventually fail. And perhaps a new England would have eventually emerged after a succession crisis or Protestant resurgence to challenge Spain and establish herself across the Atlantic. Anyway, one could go on tossing about counterfactuals all day. While this speculation is great fodder for an argument over a couple of pints, eager to do that with any of you someday, it does not change the main point. Had Elizabeth and England's Protestant elite fallen or been overthrown, the development of North America would have been profoundly different. The English, and especially Sir Francis Drake and his flotilla of would-be imitators, had been vexing Philip for more than 12 years, counting at least from Drake's first highly lucrative operation against him in 1573. The tensions between the two countries had ramped up since 1580 when Drake returned from his circumnavigation and Elizabeth refused to surrender his loot, which outraged Philip and his advisors. The indignities compounded in the first few years of the decade, and finally, in 1585, Philip started grabbing English merchant ships sailing into Spanish ports, impounding their cargo, and imprisoning their crews. As we heard a couple of weeks back, Elizabeth and her Privy Council responded by, among various things, sending Drake into the West Indies with 30 ships, where he burned down Spain's two most important cities, Santo Domingo and Hispaniola and Cartagena, in today's Colombia. In December 1585, even before Drake had done his worst, Philip ordered his nephew, Duke of Parma, the general who had defeated the Dutch in Flanders, to plan an invasion of England from Holland across the English Channel. The next month, he directed his admiral, Alvaro de Bazan, first marquis of Santa Cruz, we'll call him Santa Cruz, to prepare an estimate of the naval forces required to seize control of the channel so that Parma's army could cross it. Philip no doubt held his nose when he made these requests. He hated the expense of war and his empire, rich as it was in the aggregate, was heavily in debt from the wars in the Netherlands and against the Ottoman Turks in the Mediterranean. Now let's turn to Robert Hutchinson, whose book, The Spanish Armada, I highly recommend. Quote, Philip's very worst misgivings were realized when Santa Cruz submitted his ambitious estimates on March 12, 1586, asking for 156 ships, plus 55,000 troops, to land in England supported by 400 auxiliary vessels. Like any modern military planner, he had built in extra contingencies in case his requirements for the invasion were cut back. But he had carefully worked out that such a military operation would cost an eye-watering four million ducats. Philip probably gasped in pain when he saw the row of knots on the paper before him, rather than from the agonizing gout that frequently afflicted him. Parma, in his 28-page plan delivered that June, envisioned a 30,000-strong force plus 500 cavalry transported in flat-bottom barges, launching a surprise attack on the Kent coast between Dover and Margate, before assaulting London, 67 miles inland. The crossing, the general declared confidently, would probably take around 10 or 12 hours or less with a following wind. Naval protection was only necessary if Elizabeth's government had learned of the invasion plans beforehand. But either way, Spanish ships could lure the English fleet away from the Straits of Dover. Skeptical that surprise could be achieved, Philip scrawled hardly possible alongside this requirement in Parma's plan. The Spanish began assembling ships and stores almost immediately, even as the actual plans iterated over much of the next year. I'll spare you the ins and outs and what have yous. Suffice it to say that the first, final plan was sorted out by the summer of 1586, The idea was that a vast naval armada was to sail in the summer of 1587 from the well-defended port of Lisbon. You will recall that Portugal and Spain were now united under Philip and had been since 1580. The armada's goal was to secure a beachhead in southern Ireland and lure Elizabeth's navy into a straight-up fight in Irish waters. Naval superiority thusly established, the Spanish fleet would sail into the Channel and secure safe passage for Parma's troop barges. As devoted and attentive listeners know, Elizabeth's spymaster, Francis Walsingham, finally got the goods on the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots, who'd been under a sort of gilded house arrest in England for most of 20 years. Mary was tried in the fall of 1586, and Elizabeth finally signed off on her execution, which happened on February 8, 1587. This clarified the geopolitical situation for Philip considerably. He had been concerned that if Mary succeeded Elizabeth, as was her due, she might, though Catholic, make common cause with her French cousins and bring about that which Philip feared most an Anglo French alliance against Spain. To mangle an old cliché, blood is thicker than religion. Philip used the occasion of Mary's execution to whip up Catholic anger and secure a commitment from the Pope, Sixtus V, that if Spain were to dispose of Elizabeth, he, Philip, would succeed to the crown of England under the authority of the papacy. By early 1587, Walsingham's spies were sending out ever louder alarms, Reports came in from merchants in his employ throughout Europe. One report said that Philip had gathered 400 ships in Lisbon and was assembling an astonishing 74,000 soldiers in Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Flanders. According to Hutchinson, provisions already accumulated for the Armada alone included a weirdly precise 184,557 quintals of biscuit. 23,000 quintals of bacon, 23,000 butts of wine, 11,000 quintals of beef, and 43,000 quintals of hard cheese. Shoot, a fella could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with all that stuff. A quintal was 100 pounds, so that would be over 9,000 tons of biscuit. More than 200 ovens were built to fulfill that order. A butt of wine was 151 gallons. So that would have been almost 3.5 million gallons of wine. Not a shabby logistics operation for the late 1500s, I must say. The Tudor administrative machine, as Hutchinson put it, creakily moved up a gear in preparation for war, with much scurrying about by hard-pressed officials. Armories were inventoried. Supplies of powder were corralled. A census was taken of all English ships, and plans were drawn up to recruit men who could fight on land in the event that Parma accomplished his invasion. The West Countrymen, who had been pricking Philip at the edges of his empire for almost 20 years, lobbied for an aggressive naval response. John Hawkins, the pirate who had started it all back in the 1560s, had long ago gone legit and was now treasurer of the navy. He wrote Walsingham in February 1587, just before Mary's execution, and proposed a preemptive attack to impede Spanish preparations. Sir Francis Drake, now one of England's richest men and a favorite of the queen by dint of competence and accomplishment, lobbied hard to lead an attack— and began to prepare a fleet that would reach 25 ships. On March 25, 1587, just as Walter Raleigh and John White were finishing the preparations for the colony they hoped to establish on the Chesapeake, but which would end up on the outer banks of North Carolina, Elizabeth authorized Drake's mission and contributed four warships and two pinnaces, including the 600-ton Elizabeth Bonaventure, which would be Drake's flagship. Drake, worried as always that Elizabeth would waver and withdraw the commission, set sail as quickly as possible. At the very last minute, he sent Walsingham a short letter, a classic for Drake in the ages, quote, "'Let me beseech your honor and hold a good opinion not only of myself, but of all these servitors in this action. The wind commands me away.' "'Our ships are under sail. "'God grant we may so live in his fear "'as the enemy may have cause to say "'that God fights for her majesty as well abroad "'as at home.'" Haste. Lighten up, Francis. (laughs) Haste was indeed warranted, for Elizabeth had in fact changed her mind and sent a fast pinnace after Drake, forbidding him from attacking port cities in metropolitan Spain, Bad weather slowed the pinnace, however, and it detoured to grab a Spanish prize because, well, that's what people did. The message never got to Drake, and he did not have to decide whether to disobey his queen. Drake set his sights on Cadiz, on the southern coast of Spain, west of Seville. By some accounts, one of Western Europe's oldest continuous settlements, English intelligence had revealed that the supposedly well-defended port there was full of Spanish supply ships, as juicy a target as Drake might imagine. Now let's go to John Sugden's account. Quote, Drake moved so quickly that when he arrived off Cadiz on April 19th, much of his fleet was trailing behind. Drake would not wait for them. He did not even wait to reconnoiter the port and its defenses. It was crowded with shipping and provisions for the armada. The wind was fair for an attack, and after a perfunctory council in which the vice-admiral counseled caution, Drake bore down on his enemies like one possessed. The port was unsuspecting, the batteries weak, and most of the sixty ships and many smaller vessels inside the harbor were unarmed. Some were store ships destined for the armada, and others had provisions for it. Still more were innocent merchantmen caught in a war that was not of their making. Drake had caught them unawares and would not afford them time to seek sanctuary beneath guns, behind shoals, or up creeks. Without flying any flags or distinguishing pennants, the English ships were led by the Elizabeth Bonaventure past the batteries and into the outer anchorage. No one contested them. As an apparent eyewitness admitted, the nonchalance that there was was so great in the confidence that no enemy would dare enter the bay, as they were so little accustomed to see seagoing ships dare to do. Nor had it been heard in many centuries previous of any such daring to break through the gates and entrances of their port. It was the same old Drake, doing... What was not so much difficult as unthinkable. The Queen's ships now raised their flags and fired after retreating galleys. Panic now overwhelmed the defenseless shipping in the outer harbor. On shore, the Spaniards thought Drake intended on sacking their city and rushed terrified into the castle, suffocating or trampling to death 26 fellow citizens in the crush. The night was cold and dark, but the English set it aglow as they began removing cargoes from their prizes and putting a light to the empty ships. Then in the early hours of April 20th, Drake led a flotilla of ships' boats into the inner harbor, where they found the greatest warship in Cadiz, a 1,500-ton galleon belonging to Santa Cruz himself. She was laden with iron and had no guns mounted. And Drake set her ablaze. Close quote. In the end, the victory was extraordinary. Various English estimates put the number of ships destroyed at 38 or 39. The Spanish report suggested somewhat fewer ships lost, but the lowest number reported was 25. Garrett Mattingly, author of The Armada, which for years was the book to beat on the subject, attributes the discrepancy less to propagandizing and more to classification. Drake probably took credit for pinnaces and other coastal craft burned, but the Spanish may have only counted ships Philip would have cared about. In any case, Drake had captured tons of Spanish provisions for his fleet— wine, oil, biscuit, and dried fruit. Sounds like a nice charcuterie board. And burned hundreds of tons of bread and wheat— and his assault on Santa Cruz's supply chain was only just beginning. All of this was achieved with one, count them, one English casualty. The master gunner of the Golden Lion had his leg shattered by a cannonball fired from the town's fortifications. The strategic importance of the English victory at Cadiz was huge, even if hard to calibrate precisely. Drake's singeing of the King of Spain's beard, as he put it, shook Europe. Back to Sugden. Not even Philip's own cities and fleets were free from humiliation at the hands of this arrogant Englishman. The impudence, dash, and damage of the raid even raised doubts as to whether Spain, albeit the greatest power on earth, could handle England besides her many other commitments. Reflecting inaccurately upon the subject, the Pope exploded in admiration for his foes. Quote, The king goes trifling with this armada of his, but the queen acts in earnest. Were she only a Catholic, she would be our best beloved, for she is of great worth. Just look at Drake. Who is he? What forces has he? And yet he burned 25 of the king's ships at Gibraltar and as many again at Lisbon. He has robbed the flotilla and sacked San Domingo. His reputation is so great that his countrymen flock to him to share his booty. We are sorry to say it, but we have a poor opinion of the Spanish Armada and fear some disaster. The Pope obviously was not getting the story exactly right, which reflects both the poor quality of communications of the 16th century and the usual fog of war, and also the extent of the reputation that Aldraque now commanded. He had shaken the confidence of Catholic hegemony and done so at a moment when it seemed on the brink of total victory. Regardless, the raid at Cadiz would set back Spanish plans for a full year, and that would cause the Armada to sail through the terrible weather in the summer of 1588 under the command of a rookie admiral. That would make all the difference. Drake, however, had not done all he would do in 1587. He sailed west along the coast of Spain and Portugal and reached Sagres Roadstead, just east of Cape St. Vincent, on the southwest corner of Europe, on May 14th. We last visited this place all the way back at the beginning of the podcast. It was here that Prince Henry the Navigator had established his incubator for explorers roughly 150 years before, kicking off the European Age of Discovery. If one controlled Cape St. Vincent and Sagres Roads, as Drake intended to do, one controlled traffic between the Mediterranean and ports on the Atlantic Ocean. This was of particular significance in 1587, because a huge proportion of the ships, men, and supplies that Spain was gathering in Lisbon for the war against England came from Mediterranean cities, A roadstead is a calm stretch of water where ships can anchor, something less than a protected harbor. In 1587, four forts flanked the Sagres roadstead, the strongest being Prince Henry's Old Redoubt, Sagres Castle, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing incorrectly, by the way, where the garrison from at least one of the other forts had retreated when Drake approached with 800 arquebusiers and pikemen, Sagres castle sat at the top of high cliffs, and three sides were inaccessible. The castle wall on the foreside was 30 to 40 feet high and 10 feet thick at the base. The path leading up to the only approach was reasonably wide, perhaps 180 paces across. Drake approached and demanded that the Portuguese garrison surrender. Failing that, under cover of his arquebusiers, he heaped pitch-soaked wood up against the massive wooden gate and set it afire. And when I said that Drake did this, he literally did. Pitching, pun intended, right in there with his men, all the while at risk from the fort's garrison. Drake was a servant leader. After two hours, the huge gate crumbled into embers and the English surged in. The garrison resisted enough to keep their heads high, and the captain, who'd been shot twice, surrendered. Drake was, as was his custom, generous in victory. Soldiers and civilians alike within the fort were allowed to depart with all their personal property except their weapons. That very afternoon, the shock and awe of Drake's victory spread to the other fortifications, all of which surrendered without firing a shot. Only five days later, Drake and his ships were off Lisbon, where the main fleet of the Armada was gathering behind that port's strong fortifications. Garrett Mattingly describes the situation there. In Lisbon, the old Marquis of Santa Cruz kept his headquarters, fuming at an emergency which found him with an enemy fleet at his door and his twelve galleons of Portugal without the new guns they had been promised with only skeleton crews and with neither gunners nor soldiers for an action. Lisbon's harbor is effectively the mouth of the Tagus River. If you look at it in your app, you can see that it narrows considerably as it approaches the Atlantic. The Spanish had fortifications on both sides of that bottleneck, which would be daunting enough. Also, Drake had no pilot on board familiar with the harbor— Even if he could somehow get past the fortifications, he couldn't very well plod his way around sounding as he went. So in essence, Drake was sitting offshore baiting Santa Cruz to come at him, which no doubt Santa Cruz sorely wished he could do, but his ships were not prepared to fight. Santa Cruz, no doubt, was vexed, very, very vexed. Drake then headed back to the Cape to refit his ships at Sager's Roads and pillage shipping along that coast. The prizes taken at this point were individually unspectacular, but of military and economic importance. Here's Mattingly's account, quote, "'The prizes were very numerous, many more than a hundred, counting those destroyed on the beaches around the Cape as well as those taken at sea.' But only a very few of them were as large as 60 tons, and none of them was going to bring a penny in prize money. They were of two general classes. Rather, more than half belonged to the tuna fisheries of southern Spain, a flourishing industry at which Drake had struck a heavy blow, systematically destroying not only every fishing boat he could find, but the little villages of the fishermen and even their nets, causing the people, Drake thought, to curse their governors to their faces. They probably cursed somebody. The rest of the prizes were the little coastwise cargo boats, barks and caravels, which carried ordinary freight around the shores of Spain. Most of them turned out to be laden with Cooper's stores, hoops and barrel staves and such like, and bound for Cadiz of the Straits, Drake knew the value of these apparently valueless prizes. The hoops and staves were above 16 or 17 hundred ton in weight, he wrote to Walsingham, which cannot be less than 25 or 30,000 tons if it had been made in cask ready for liquor, all by which I commanded to be consumed into smoke and ashes by fire, which will be, under the king, no small waste of his provisions, besides the want of his barks. For the navies of the day, casks were a prime necessity, not only for stowing water and wine, but for salt meat, salt fish, biscuits, and all sorts of provisions. For tight casks, well seasoned barrel staves of the proper quality were essential. Of this commodity, there was never much surplus, and the outfitting of the armada was already creating an extraordinary demand. If, when the armada finally sailed, its water butts proved to be leaky and foul, if much food spoiled because of green barrel staves and ill-made casks, the smoke which hung over the Sagres was to blame. Burning those barrel staves was probably a graver blow to Spain than burning the ships in Cadiz Bay. Close quote. The roving of Drake's fleet at Cape St. Vincent paralyzed Spanish shipping and drove Philip nuts. At Lisbon, Santa Cruz was waiting for soldiers, sailors, guns, powder, and victuals, most of which was supposed to sail from Mediterranean ports and dared not venture further west than Cadiz, because Drake... Drake was living rent-free in Philip's mind. Philip, micromanaging workaholic that he was, drove his commanders nuts with new orders every day as Drake kept popping up in different places. Ships in the river at Seville were to proceed at once to Lisbon. No one was to move while Drake was prowling off Cape St. Vincent. Drake was gone from the Cape, let the galleys take aboard the artillery and the soldiers which were so urgently needed to make a dash for Lisbon. Drake was back at the Cape, the galleys were to be stayed, and the soldiers were to march for Lisbon over land, and so forth. Fortunately for Philip's anxiety, Elizabethan fleets could not stay at sea indefinitely. Disease had been spreading among Drake's men, and he was experienced enough to know that his window for offensive action was closing. At the end of May, he divided his fleet, sending the sickest men home to England on several of his ships. Suddenly, on June 1st, without even completing the watering and provisioning of his remaining ships, Drake and his fleet set sail for the Azores. Drake had, somehow, heard of a target of utmost importance. Devoted and attentive listeners will remember that Portugal had circumvented the Muslim monopoly on trade with Asia by finding its way around the Horn of Africa. For more than 40 years, the Portuguese would run four big ships from Lisbon to Goa in India in a trading circuit. These ships were known as nows to the Portuguese, as any fan of Civilization V well knows, and carracks to the English, which derives from the Catalan word caracas. On her return voyage, a carrack from Goa would proceed up the west coast of Africa until the winds turned against her. Then she would tack in a wide loop to the west, eventually ending up at the Azores, where she would catch the westerlies that blowed down on those islands and cut east to Lisbon. The value of her cargo would be immense. Drake somehow had gotten wind that the carrack from Goa was in the Atlantic. Sure enough, when on June 18th, Drake reached San Miguel in the Azores, there she was, the San Felipe, loaded down with the riches of the Orient. Her main deck was too loaded with merchandise to use most of her guns. After making a show of it, she struck her sails and the ship was Drake's. Drake gave the San Felipe's crew one of the fleet's less valuable ships, and they were released to sail on to Portugal. Mattingly describes the contents of the prize and its economic significance, quote, The Carrack was stuffed with pepper, cinnamon, and cloves, calicoes, silk, and ivories, besides a satisfactory quantity of gold and silver and some caskets of jewels. The total value turned out to be nearly 114,000 pounds, That was more than three times the value of all the ships and cargoes seized, sunk, or burned in Cadiz Bay. All the barrel staves and all the fishing boats in Spain could not have been sold for such a figure. Now, a galleon the size of Drake's flagship could be built new for about 2,600 pounds or hired for about 28 pounds a month. And the queen's ships, a seaman's cost for wages and victuals was... 14 shillings a month, and a full crew for the Elizabeth Bonaventure could be paid and fed for 175 pounds or less. Drake's share of 17,000 pounds was the worth of a nobleman's estate. Elizabeth's share of 40,000 pounds would put an army in the field. The San Felipe, it turned out, was Philip's own ship, purportedly among the greatest in his fleet, And it had carried a double load, that of another Carrick, the San Lorenzo, which had sprung a leak and stayed in India. It was Drake's greatest single prize, at least since he had grabbed the poop fire, we remain a family podcast, off the coast of Peru in 1579, and perhaps the greatest of all time. Goat or not, the capture of the San Felipe made the voyage commercially and supplied Elizabeth with desperately needed funds for the defense of the realm. The San Felipe also carried documents that revealed long enshrouded secrets of Portugal's East Indies trade. The loot and the new information would renew the old merchant adventurer interest in direct trade with Asia— Drake's investors in 1587 would go on to become the founding investors of the East India Company in 1600, even though Drake himself would not live to see it. Because of Drake's voyage and triumphant return at the end of June 1587, the armada would not sail on Philip's schedule. It had been delayed for a year that would turn out to be very important. Elizabeth and her privy council would have more time to prepare the national defense. Philip's veteran commander Santa Cruz would die. The Armada's victuals would turn nasty. And the weather would turn unlucky for Philip's new admiral, the rookie Duke of Medina-Sidonia. Existential wars have turned on less. This is a good place to stop today. Next week, we will take up the defeat of the Spanish Armada, without which English settlement of North America would have looked very different. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I should say that your emails have been very encouraging, so please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And if you have not done so, consider buying one of our cool new Presentism Prohibited t-shirts, which you can find by clicking on the About tab at the top of the website's homepage. All profits go to one or another worthy cause, including... The education of the daughter who designed it. Until next time.